0: Welcome back. Podcast 26 discusses many of the reasons why the saints were persecuted, why Joseph Smith and Hiram were martyred, and what happened to those in the mob who shot Joseph Smith and were tried. It's good to be back with you. If you remember uh, the last time we met, we had an opportunity to interview Wayne May and to, uh, to talk with him a little bit about some of the things that he's an expert in. Uh, which has to do with the Heartland model of the Book of Mormon. Enjoy Wayne immensely, his good friend. And as we talked about before, that we had some special podcasts that we were doing a few weeks back. Of course, we concluded the death of Joseph Smith, his martyrdom at Carthage Jail, and then we did a podcast uh, involving a discussion about the unique aspects of his burials, buried a number of times, and uh, that was that was fascinating, involving uh, the. Um, the Cut uh, Dam that was built and the backwater that took place and the erosion that was happening and the potential loss of the bodies of Joseph and Hiram and ultimately their, their having been exhumed and then reinterred. So that was a, that was a good podcast. Today we're going to uh, kind of conclude Joseph with a discussion about the trial of those who are responsible for the death of Joseph and Hiram. This first slide I have up here introduces the title of this podcast, The Moral Hypocrisy of the Trial of Those Who Killed a Prophet. And I found this definition to be very apropos for our discussion today. Hypocrisy is the state of pretending to have beliefs, opinions, virtues, feelings, qualities, or standards that one does not actually have. Hypocrisy involves the deception of others and is thus a lie. I have found as I've studied through this particular trial to be nothing but hypocrisy. Go ahead and begin our discussion about uh, the trial of those who killed a prophet. As early as 1843 the Prophet Joseph Smith was aware of plots uh, that were happening uh, to silence him, uh, whether by placing him back in jail or killing him. But this was old news. Joseph's life is a history of verbal and physical persecutions. But I might pose the question why? Why? What had the saints done to be so feared and so hated? There were times, as I've studied and uh, reflected on the history of of the early church, that it would have been great to have had a quality public relations spokesperson for the saints, because at times we were our own worst enemies. When the saints talked of being friends with freed blacks, while living in a slave state, or how friendly the Indians next door was, is certainly going to raise the suspicion of those around us. And then there's the, the issue of refinement. Refinement versus leanness of intellect, as Joseph put it. An East Coast or British Isle Mormon trying to adapt to the brazen, harsh attitudes of the West, or as David Whitmer called it, the Far West. And then there's the rhetoric that we uttered more than once that uh, we will only do business with our own kind and yet at the same time enacting trade on the Oregon and Santa Fe trailhead. And uh, let us for not forget about our conscientious, patriotic voting church members. Of course, we'll probably vote as a block for whomever we feel will serve our greater purpose. And then... Leastly we forget the issue of purchasing land. Quote, the land will be ours anyway someday. The Mormons are coming. If you don't like it, sell and leave. Well, so much for tact. But are these the real reasons that Joseph was killed? Or were there other more deeply seated reasons? In September of 1843, Joseph Smith was shown a copy of a letter from Samuel Owens of Independence, Missouri. Joseph wrote in his journal, and I quote, To show the wickedness and rascality of John C. Bennett and the corrupt conspiracy formed against me in Missouri and Illinois, I insert the following under the date of the letter, June 10, 1843. According to the letter, Owens, Samuel Owens, was determined to have the prophet arrested on false charges and returned to Missouri. And he had been in contact with such people as John Bennett, Governor Reynolds, Governor Ford, Harmon Wilson of Carthage, Illinois, and Joseph Reynolds of Missouri. But these weren't the only men involved. After further research, it has been verified that, quote, the corrupt conspiracy discovered by Joseph Smith included many other enemies of the church who conspired together to plan the martyrdom and force the exodus of the saints. Enemies of the church became desperate, wanting their illegal acts kept secret, even while they were plotting to kidnap Joseph. But after several unsuccessful kidnapping attempts, they determined their only recourse was to kill him. Sounds a little bit like the Gadianton Robbers. The real reasons for killing the prophet go far beyond a hatred for the church and its beliefs. In LDS Living Magazine 2019, an article listed six different plot lines associated with the murder of Joseph Smith. I want to take the time to review each of these plot lines and consider the relative strengths as we contemplate our upcoming trial of those who murdered a prophet of God. First, William Clark, formerly of the Lewis and Clark expedition, and the Shoteau family, Lewis and Clark and the Choteau family, were afraid that if the Latter-day Saints moved to Missouri, it would upset some dishonest business dealings that Clark and the Shotos were involved in. Shortly after the church was officially organized, Oliver Cowdery wrote to U.S. Superintendent of Indian Affairs, William Clark, seeking permission to teach the Native Americans in the Kansas Territory near Jackson County, Missouri, while Clark did not respond to Cowdery's request, and the missionaries were forced to leave. Now, there's no surprise there. As a result of the 1830 Indian Relocation Act, many Indian tribes were forced to remove to the Kansas and Oklahoma territories. During that time, William Clark, Senator Thomas Benton, former chairman of the Senate Committee of Indian Affairs, and Pierre Chouteau, and certain members of his family would negotiate treaty terms with these tribal leaders that were there in, in the territory. They then secured large annual government annuities to pay for the Native Americans' relocations. With the approval from Clark and Benton, the Native Americans would in turn purchase goods at inflated prices at the various Choteau family trading posts using these government funds, which then funneled large amounts of money into the pockets of the Shotos, Clark, and Benton. As Latter-day Saints communities continued to expand in Missouri, members of this group continued to fear the Saints would return to Jackson County and challenge their trade monopoly. Even after the Saints settled in Nauvoo, they still feared the Latter-day Saints might return as Joseph Smith was eagerly pursuing the various redress petitions in Congress for reparations and the right to return to their to their lands in Missouri. So there's that issue. Second, We mentioned earlier the local independence merchants felt threatened by the gathering saints. Well, the first sale of lots in the new town of Independence, Missouri, occurred in July of 1827. Of the initial public sale of 75 lots, a group of merchants formed a coalition and purchased more than one-third of them. Lalburn Boggs and Samuel Owens were early members of the, quote, independence merchant group many of whom were also involved in the Santa Fe and Oregon Trail. A few years later, however, Sidney Rigdon was called to operate the Bishop Storehouse in Independence. Because the storehouse operated under the newly introduced Law of Consecration, many of the goods sold in the Gilbert Store were provided at no cost by faithful members. But when the store began trading with Santa Fe merchants and local farmers, the other independent merchants group could not compete. Evidence of the merchants' resentment for the store surfaced when the Saints were forced out of Jackson County in 1834, and most of the destruction from the mobs was aimed directly at the Gilbert store and the William Phelps printing office. The harassment didn't end there. Samuel Owens continued persecuting the saints for more than 10 years and was connected with other conspirator groups through family relationships. For example, Owens' wife was a cousin to Senator Richard Young. Richard Young served as the judge when Joseph's murderers were acquitted. All right, thirdly, let's talk Warsaw. Let's talk Warsaw. Warsaw, Illinois, officials worried that their city would be bypassed by a new waterway, while the Latter day Saints in Nauvoo, Montrose, and Keokuk would have ready access to it. It seems that Lieutenant Robert E. Lee, of Civil War fame, working for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, was assigned to clear the Des Moines rapids on the Mississippi River between Commerce, which is Nauvoo, and Warsaw. In 1837, after many surveys, Lee discovered what he called the Spanish chute underneath the surface of the rapids. He felt this could be cleared to provide year-round steamboat access. Unfortunately for the Warsaw land speculators and residents, this natural waterway went from Nashville, across from Nauvoo, to Keokuk. Nauvoo, Montrose, and Kieka would benefit from Lee's efforts, but Warsaw would likely be left out. Furthermore, Lee sold a steamboat to Joseph Smith and other church members, which made Warsaw speculators more angry and covetous of the resources that their saints were given. All right, Fourth, the arrival of the saints in Nauvoo interrupted plans for a railroad project. Before the Saints arrived in 1839 the Illinois State Legislature approved the creation of the Des Moines Rapids Railroad to be built from Nauvoo to Warsaw. The Des Moines Rapid Railroad was planned to run directly through Nauvoo to the Nauvoo steamboat landing sites. Cranes would unload cargo directly from the docked steamboats at Nauvoo onto railroad cars and then run the cargo to Warsaw to be reloaded back to steamboats during the annual low-water periods. Under this plan, Warsaw would remain a key commercial trade center with Nauvoo but the newly arriving Latter-day Saints were settling right in the way of the planned railroad route. Involved in the plot to murder Joseph Smith were nine commissioners directly associated with the planned railroads for the Hancock County area, including Mark Aldrich of Warsaw, a former state legislator and commissioner of the Warsaw-Peoria-Wabash Railroad. Aldrich was a major in the militia and charged as one of the five defendants in Joseph and Hiram's murder. All right, let's go to the fifth reason. It's the New York Land Company, the New York Land Company. This company wanted the 20,000 acres of Latter-day Saint-owned lands in Montrose, Iowa, just across the river from Nauvoo. In 1841, Francis Scott Key, author of the United States National Anthem, visited Nauvoo and the Iowa Territory as an attorney for the New York Land Company. While in Iowa, Key proposed a plan to aid the Iowa courts in partitioning the entire 119,000 acres of the Iowa half-breed tract lands. The New York Land Company used Key's plan to secure more than 41% of the 119,000 acres and discreetly and dishonestly reclaim the 20,000 acres purchased by Vincent Knight and Joseph Smith from Isaac Galen in 1839. The New York Land Company leaders and other claimants were anxious to take away these lands and force the Saints out of Iowa so they could pursue their own development. David Kilbourne, A known enemy to the church was the local agent for the New York Land Company. Kilborn assisted various apostate members of the church who were involved in the Nauvoo Expositor incident. Now the article goes on to say, Quote, Research suggests that representatives of these various groups, including the Shoto family, the Independent Merchant Group, the New York Land Company, and the Illinois Railroad Commissioners were linked to the final plans to murder the prophet. Each of these groups had greedy economic reasons they wanted the Latter-day Saints to leave, and the only way they thought that they could succeed in doing this was by killing the prophet Joseph. Lastly, and I might add, was Joseph Smith a legitimate candidate for President of the United States? Joseph said the following, and I quote, I would not have suffered my name to have been used by my friends on any wise as President of the United States or candidate for that office if I and my friends could have had the privilege of enjoying our religious and civil rights as American citizens. Persecution has rolled upon our heads, and no portion of the government as yet has stepped forward for our relief. And in view of these things, I feel it to be my right and privilege to obtain what influence and power I can in the United States for the protection of the innocent. Joseph Smith's political platform was threefold. First, the abolition of slavery, which would happen 21 years later. Second, the economic reform through the establishment of a national bank, which would happen 20 years later. And thirdly, the overhaul of the criminal justice system that would reduce incarcerations, engage prisoners in public work projects, and provide them with education. Joseph's platform seems to have clashed with many of the candidates running for president, especially the pro-slavery candidates. Well, James K. Polk, a slave owner, defeated Henry Clay to win the 1844 presidential election. Joseph was ahead of his time. All right, with this as a backdrop, let's look at those charged with the death of Joseph and Hiram. In October 1844, a Hancock County ground jury indicted nine men for the murder of Joseph and Hiram. Four men fled the county and were never arrested. Those men were John Wills, William Voorhees, and two men with unknown first names, last names Gallagher and Allen, all fled the county. A witness to the murders, Jeremiah Willie, said that Wills, Gallagher, and Voraz were among the men that broke into Smith's room and that Gallagher shot Joseph Smith in the back as he ran to the window. Interestingly enough, Wills, Gallagher, and Voraz all received wounds when they were shot through the cell door by Joseph's pepperbox six-shooter, so they were certainly close by. The following information that I'm going to share with you on the five defendants in the Carthage Conspiracy Trial of 1845 is taken in part from a book called Carthage Conspiracy by Elder Dallin H. Oaks and Marvin S. Hill. Let's talk the first guy, Levi Williams. Levi Williams was colonel and commanding officer of the 59th Regiment of the Illinois Militia. At the time of his indictment, he was 34 years old. Levi Williams and his wife moved from New York to Green Plains, Illinois in the early 1830s. There, the couple raised their five children. Williams farmed, worked as a cooper, and served as a part-time Baptist minister. He rose through the ranks of the Illinois militia and assumed the position of commanding officer of the 59th Regiment in 1840. Williams used his position in the militia to make life very difficult for the Saints. Williams reportedly said after Joseph's murder, quote, Mormon dominance of Hancock County meant that the old settlers had no chance and that murder was the only way to get rid of them. Our second culprit, Mark Aldrich. He was a land developer and a commander of the Warsaw Independent Battalion. At the time of his indictment, he was 42 years old. Mark Aldrich was the oldest of the Carthage defendants. He was a founder of Carthage and a Whig Party member of the Illinois State Legislature. After the Carthage trial, he became the first American mayor of Tucson, Arizona and a three-term territorial senator. Aldrich moved to Hancock County from New York in 1832. He quickly established himself as one of the early developers of the area. Aldrich and Joseph became involved in a land dispute in 1841 and 1842 after 204 English immigrant Mormons rented land just south of Warsaw that was owned by Aldrich. When Aldrich raised the rent and imposed certain restrictions objectable to Joseph, the Mormons left for Nauvoo, a move that would force Aldrich to file for bankruptcy in March of 1842. It is believed that the land controversy turned Aldrich into an outspoken opponent of the presence of Mormons in Hancock County. Next, we have Jacob C. Davis, a state senator and commander of the Warsaw Cadets. At the time of his indictment, he was 31 years old. After attending William and Mary College in Virginia, Davis moved to Warsaw in 1838 where he studied law and served as a Hancock County Circuit Clerk before being elected, with the Mormon support, I might add, to the Illinois Senate in 1842. In 1844, Davis sought the Democratic nomination for a seat in Congress, but he failed to win the Mormon vote and thus lost the race. And it's believed that that failure of the Mormons to support his campaign for Congress probably led Davis to become an outspoken opponent of the presence of Mormons in Hancock County as well. Now I get to one of my favorites, Thomas C. Sharp, publisher of the Warsaw Signal, a leading anti-Mormon newspaper. He was 31 years old at the time of his indictment, Old Tom Sharp, as he was called by the Mormons, was the most outspoken of the five defendants. Sharp's anti-Mormon views, published in the Warsaw Signal newspaper, helped turn much of Hancock County's non-Mormon population against the Saints. After graduating from Dickinson College in Pennsylvania and studying law, Sharp moved to Warsaw in 1840. After a year or so of a largely unsuccessful law practice, Sharp turned to editorializing against the Mormons in Hancock County. After the destruction of the Nauvoo Expositor, Sharp called for revenge. He said in his paper, and I quote, War and extermination is inevitable. We have no time for comment. Every man will make his own and let it be made with powder and ball. Sharp would later defend the murderers of the Warsaw Signal, calling them an execution supported by some of our most respectable citizens. Quote. Sharp fled to Missouri after a reward was posted for his arrest, but surrendered to Illinois authorities on October 1, 1844. Following his acquittal at, Carthage, at the Carthage trial, Sharp served as mayor of Warsaw, a hancock county judge and a school principal now you have william n grover he was captain of the warsaw rifle company he was 26 at the time of his indictment william grover was married but childless he practiced law in warsaw he was elected justice of the peace in 1843 in the summation for the prosecution, Josiah Lambert conceded that the state had failed to produce sufficient evidence to convict Grover. Lambert told the jury, quote, Nor is there evidence to convict Captain Grover, although I verily believe he was at the jail with a gun. Well, after his acquittal, Grover moved to Missouri, and in 1863 he was appointed U.S. Attorney for the East District of Missouri. Now, there you have it five accused of the brutal murders of Joseph and Hiram. Well, let's prepare for court. The decision to prosecute any of these killers actually hinged on an election, August of 1844. This election would fill many Hancock County public offices. Those supported by the church swept into office. This included a new sheriff of Hancock County, a man by the name of Miner Deming. So, Minor Deming, he vowed to uh, prosecute those responsible for the murders of Joseph and Hiram. So, we like this guy. In September of 1844, Governor Ford sent a large group of men to the county to round up those that would be prosecuted. However, most had already fled to Missouri. In late September, Murray McConnell, A special agent appointed by the governor went to Nauvoo to take testimony from witnesses. Testimonies pointed fingers at Levi Williams, Thomas Sharp, William Law, Robert and Charles Foster, and others. Arrest warrants were issued with a $2,000 reward for the arrest of Thomas Sharp, Levi Williams, and Joseph Jackson. Eventually... Governor Ford offered some concession to both Levi Williams and Thomas Sharp and convinced them to turn themselves in. He offered them reasonable bail and no motion would be made to accept a change of venue. By October, a grand jury handed down nine indictments and in the end, five would stand trial. The prosecution case became complicated, however, when John Taylor told the members of the church not to testify. Elder Taylor said the state could not be trusted to protect them. I suppose he had every reason to say that. And to make matters worse, a book de- detailing the murder of Joseph and Hiram written and sold by William M. Daniels surfaced. William L. William M. Daniels was going to be the star witness in the prosecution case. However, this book And testimony was littered with inconsistencies and sensationalism, and would later be turned against the state's case. All right, on with the trial. On the morning of Wednesday, May twenty first, eighteen forty five, the case of the people versus Levi Williams was called to order. The judge, Richard M. Young, presided. The defendant's attorney were led by Orville H. Browning. Quote, perhaps the most able speaker in the state at the time, and joining Browning were Colonel William A. Richardson, Calvin A. Warren, and Archibald Williams. On the very first day, the defense claimed extreme prejudice relative to the jury panel that was chosen. This panel was chosen by the Mormon-dominated county commissioners. The attorneys moved that a new panel of jurors be appointed by the court. Judge Young granted the motion. On this new panel of 96 men, only four were Mormons. The jury eventually consisted of 12 non-Mormon men. The lead prosecutor, Josiah Lambert, he's he's our guy, uh, called the five defendants, quote, The movers and instigator of the mob. The guilt of this crime hangs over you as a blight and a curse. Lambert called witness John Payton to the stand he testified that he marched towards Nauvoo with other members of the Warsaw Militia. When they reached the railroad shanty about six miles from Warsaw, Colonel Levi Williams discharged the three companies of militia as directed by the governor and then proceeded to, quote, beat up for volunteers to go to Carthage. Peyton said that Mark Aldrich told the men, quote, the time had come to stop the Mormon grab in Hancock County. After the speeches, a hundred men set off for Carthage. According to Peyton, this group included Levi Williams, Mark Aldrich, Thomas Sharp, and William Grover. Peyton said that, quote, Jacob Davis did not join them, but headed home. And he said, I'll be damned if I would kill a man who was confined in prison. The prosecution took a chance and called the Mormon hater Frank Worrell to the stand. It seems that the day before the murderers, Worrell had warned Dan Jones, quote, We have had too much trouble bringing old Joe here and to let him escape alive, and unless you want to die with him, you better leave before sundown. Well, unsurprisingly enough, Worrell denied this conversation ever happened. However, he did testify to seeing men disguise themselves with wet gunpowder and then rush the door. However, the smoke and noise prevented him from seeing what was done. Lambord then asked Worrell, "Do you know if the Carthage Greys loaded the guns with blank cartridges?" Well, the defense attorney jumped up quickly and advised Worrell, "Do not answer that question; it might incriminate you." Well, Worrell refused to answer the question. I put Oran Porter Rockwell on this slide because he and uh, he and Frank Worrell have an interesting history. Uh, the slide reads: Joseph's death at the hands of the mob at Carthage, Illinois, spurred a Mormon exodus from Nauvoo. It was during this time of upheaval that Rockwell shot and killed. Frank A. Whirl who, who was menacing the Hancock County Sheriff, Jacob Bacintos. Rockwell had been hastily deputized only moments before the shooting, a fact which made the incident no less sensational when it was learned that the dead man was none other than the militia lieutenant in charge of protecting Joseph Smith when the Mormon prophet was assassinated the year before. Interesting how the circle turns. Next, the prosecution called three witnesses that placed Aldrich, Williams, and Sharp in Carthage before the 5 o'clock attack. They witnessed a hasty retreat by those who attacked the jail as the militia troops from the courthouse arrived. Now, the star witness for the prosecution was a recent Mormon convert, a 24-year-old fellow by the name of William Daniels. Daniels had just published an account of the murder of Joseph and Hiram. Unfortunately, this book was full of sensationalism and inaccurate reporting. It was hard to determine from Daniels what was true versus what truth was stretched. Daniels did place Thomas Sharp quote, at the shanty, recruiting recruiting those who would march with him to Carthage to kill the Smiths and get rid of the Mormons. Daniels testified that the first to volunteer was William Grover. Daniels said that 60 to 100 set out for Carthage. Daniels said that the guards knew that they had blank cartridges. Daniels testified that as the group rushed the door, William Grover yelled, rush in boys, there's no danger here. That's about where the believable comes to an end. The defense attorney then turned on Daniels with a series of questions that would cause him to fall on his sword. Lambert asked Daniels about the pillar of light that saved Joseph from being mutilated. Orville Browning's cross-examination exploited both inconsistencies and impossibilities. The ultimate outcome was that it became very apparent that Daniels had advanced knowledge of the plot, but took no action to warn the Smiths. Browning read the Daniels and Littlefield account to the jury after cross-examining Daniels. It was obvious that Daniels and the publisher Littlefield expected to make large sums of money from the sale of their book. I want to read you from this slide a little bit of the cross-examination that took place with uh, Orville Browning and uh, William Daniels. Question. At what time did you see the marvelous light? Answer. I saw it at the place after the shooting. Question, how long after? Answer, a short time after. Question, well, tell us about that light. Answer, it was like a flash of lightning there at that moment. Question, it was not a streak then? Answer, it was like a flash. Question, was it where the body lay? Answer, it passed by his body at one side. Question, when he was shot, did anyone go up to him? Answer, yes, a young man attempted to get at him. Question, had he anything in his hand? Answer, he had a pewter flute in his hand. Question, had he a boy knife in his hand? Answer, I did not see any. Question, did he get to Smith? Answer, no. Question, what stopped him? Answer, that light. Question, how did it affect him? Answer, he did not go further. Question, did he look frightened? Answer, I don't know. I was very much affrightened myself. Question, then you did not see him stand, quote, like a marble statue? Answer, no. Question, your book says you were frozen. Answer, the book contains several mistakes. The prosecution then called Eliza Jane Graham. She was a 33-year-old Mormon woman from Nauvoo. Her aunt ran the Warsaw House, or Fleming Tavern, there in Warsaw, and Eliza was one of her employees. Eliza said, later that night, the murderers, Davis and Grover, showed up at the tavern and openly discussed the killings of the smiths. Grover even bragged that he was the one who actually killed old Joe. Browning's cross-examine, however, showed that Eliza had a great difficult time recalling the exact words spoken that night and that she was probably a very prejudiced witness being a Mormon. Well, the last prosecution witness was 18-year-old Benjamin Brackenberry. I'll let you read down through Benjamin's history there on the slide. He was a baggage wagon driver in the Warsaw Militia. He claimed that as the murderers were marching to Carthage, they were met by a messenger sent by the Carthage Greys with a note. And the note said, Quote, Now is the time to rush on. The governor is gone to Nauvoo, and there is nobody in Carthage but what you can put dependence on. Blackenberry placed all five defendants in Carthage. His wagon was positioned about a quarter of a mile away from the jail. As the shots rang out, Brackenberry saw the militia running back away from the jail. Brackenberry said that he saw Grover, who said to him, I killed the Smiths, and that Smith was a damn stout man, and that he went into the room where Smith was, and that Smith had struck him twice in the face. Close quote. In cross-examining Brackenberry, the defense scored some points with a concession from Brackenberry that he had had something to drink that day. Brackenberry then said, quote, that he should have remembered things better if he had not felt so nice. The defense then presented 16 witnesses. None of the five defendants ever testified. It seems the defense was simply focused on impeaching Daniels, Graham, and Brackenberry, the defense' final witness was Anne Fleming, the proprietor of the, Warhow, of the War House. Uh. Okay, can I start that one once more? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. The defense then presented sixteen witnesses. None of the five defendants themselves ever testified. It seems the defense was simply focused on impeaching Daniels, Graham, and Brackenbury. The defense' final witness was Anne Fleming, the proprietor of the Warsaw House or Fleming Tavern, as it was called, where Eliza Graham was employed. She said that she never saw Sharp or Grover at the tavern that evening. After her testimony, the defense then rested. In Lambert's final statement, he said that he had no legal evidence to convict Davis or Grover, but felt that they were at the jail with guns at the time. Now, The cause of Lambert's sudden bailing on the state case is really a matter of speculation. Was it that he feared for his life, or was he promised a payoff? He did conclude, however, that he felt there was enough evidence to convict Thomas Sharp, Mark Aldrich, and Levi Williams. I want to read you from the court docket what he had to say in his final uh, statements here. This is Josiah Lambert, our uh, prosecuting attorney. Lambort's final statement was, was rather incredible. I want to actually read it to you from the court docket, portions of it from the court docket. He, uh, he, he literally bailed on everything that he had presented. Josiah Lambort began his closing argument for the state by offering a series of startling concessions. He admitted that William Daniels, generally considered to be the state's star witness, quote, has made statements which ought to impeach his evidence before any court. As a result, Lambort said, quote, therefore exclude Daniels' evidence from consideration by the jury. He then waved off the evidence of Benjamin Brackenberry, He said Benjamin was drunk and is a loafer and prejudiced prejudiced himself before the grand jury. And finally, and most surprisingly, he dismissed the evidence of the last of the three key witnesses, Eliza Graham. Although he said he was sincerely of the opinion that she spoke the truth, the testimony of several contradicting witnesses convinced him that he should, quote, give her up. Lambert said that although he had not a particle of doubt as that Davis was a member of the murder conspiracy there's no legal evidence to convict him the same went for Grover even though Lambert said I verily believe he was at the jail with a gun and so basically our prosecuting attorney Josiah Lambert dropped the case now I suppose the question could be asked why why drop the case Again, was his life in danger? Was there a payoff involved? We're not certain. Three defense attorneys made closing arguments. Calvin Warren told jurors, "If these men are guilty, then every man, woman, and child in the county was guilty. The same evidence that was has been given against the defendants could have been given against hundreds of others." When I Skinner use his time to attack the state's witnesses. And then finally, Orville Browning denounced the crusade committed against these defendants and that the jury can now restore peace and prevent a bloody and terrible war. And they rested. At 11.30 a.m. on Friday, May 30, 1845, the jury was excused to deliberate. Two hours later, the jury reported its verdict not guilty for all five defendants. Interestingly enough, 25 years later, in 1870, the United States Secretary of State, John Hay, whose hometown, of all things, was from was from Warsaw, wrote about the trial of those accused of the murders of Joseph and Hiram, and this is what he said. There was not a man in the jury, in the court, or in the county that did not know that those defendants had done murder, but it was not proven, and the verdict of not guilty was right in the face of law. Well, that concludes our podcast relative to the trial of those five who were indicted for the murder of uh, of Joseph and Hiram. Uh, four escaped, went across the border into Missouri or who knows where, and five were tried and found not guilty. Uh, in the face of law. Our uh, next podcast that I'm going to do is going to take, and it's going to be a very, very unique podcast. I'm going to take and compare the life of Joseph and Jesus Christ. And this will be our concluding podcast that we'll have relative to the life of Joseph Smith. We will have concluded 25 podcasts taking our journey from Joseph's Ancestry long before his birth to ultimately his death and the trial of those who, uh, who are responsible for his death. So, until next time, look forward to an opportunity to uh, have a discussion a little bit about the similarities between Jesus Christ and Joseph Smith. Thanks for watching. Thank you for listening today and for sharing this comefollowme2021.com website. We sure appreciate those who have been contributing on our Patreon page under Latter-day Media. To contact Kay, email him at footstepsofjoseph at gmail.com.